If you have a Bible, open with me to Luke chapter 11, Luke 11. We took a break uh, in our series on the Gospel of Luke for uh, about a month or so, and we went through uh, this series as we talked about on evangelism, on discipleship, on spreading the Gospel uh, throughout our neighborhoods and the nation, and now we are back where we left off in the Gospel of Luke. I'm going to jump right in. Part of what we talked about is Luke is trying to answer this question, and he's, um, he's building this argument all along the way, trying to tell us, his readers, uh, who this Jesus really is. And so we get one more answer to that very important question uh, in the passage this morning. I'm going to read this for us, Luke chapter 11. I'm going to start in verse 14. Again, there's Bibles back for, there for you if you need them. Scripture says this. It says, now he, meaning Jesus, Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the man spoke, the mute spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore I tell you, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, Guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor. The armor in which he had trusted and he divides his spoils. Whoever is not with me, Jesus says, is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. And he continues in verse 24. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And then finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. And then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. God, again, in this, in this passage, we pray, God, that you would speak to us. God, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us. God, that we would hear from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, what is going on in this story, right? I mean, uh, even for me, a, a kid who grew up in church, who, who went to Bible school, who's been reading the Bible most of my life, I come to a passage like this, and I'm asking myself, what is really going on? This is a confusing text, right? In fact, this, this passage uh, is one of the passages typically grouped in with the quote-unquote hard sayings of Jesus in the New Testament. Even the language is unusual, right? The context is unusual. The language is unusual. Jesus seems to be very cryptic here. But I'm going to do my best to clarify. What Luke does is Luke just jumps right into this story, right? With, with, without really much introduction at all, Luke jumps right in. He says Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. This story is actually found in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, 
And Matthew makes note that this, this person who is demon-possessed, this demon-possessed man was not only mute, but he was also blind. And so Jesus sort of enters the story, enters the life of this man possessed by a demon, and he heals him. He casts this demon out so that this man can now hear and can now speak and can now see uh, maybe for the first time. And it seems that everyone has a different reaction to Jesus in this moment, right? Scripture says that some of them marveled, you see, in verse 14. Some of them accused Jesus of colluding with the devil, the prince of demons. Some, it said, tried to test him. They're trying to trick him or trap him, and they demand a sign from heaven. But no one disbelieved the miracle. No one argued with his power or divinity. And so Jesus, knowing their thoughts, Jesus, knowing their hearts, he began uh, dismantling their argument, right? So Jesus shows up, Jesus casts out this demon, now this man can speak and see and hear, and everybody's sort of reacting differently to this story. But they start accusing him of maybe um, colluding with the devil, and he says, that that doesn't even make any sense. Why, why would I be working with the prince of demons to be casting out demons? In any way, by whose power do your sons cast out demons? What credentials do you have? It makes no sense. Jesus says instead that it is, it is what? The finger of God. Matthew, in his version of the story, makes really clear that the finger of God is the, is the spirit of God. And this language, this phrase is actually used, I think, only one other time in Scripture. It's a language used in uh, the book of Exodus in chapter 8, I believe, where, the, where Pharaoh's magicians are telling Pharaoh um, during the season of, of, the, of God sending the plagues onto Pharaoh and the people of Egypt, the magicians are trying to copy the works of God and they're trying to duplicate this plague of gnats um, that has infested the country. And the magicians come to Pharaoh and they said, we can't, we can't copy this. We can't outdo this. This is, this is not magic. This is the finger of God. This is real power. And so Jesus is telling the Pharisees in this moment that, that his power does not come from um, colluding with the enemy. It doesn't come from tricks. It doesn't come from magic. This is something much deeper. This is the very finger of God. This is the picture of the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit revealing his power of the kingdom of God here and now in this moment. And then Jesus tells them this parable. He says, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But then when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he had trusted, and then he divides his spoil. So Jesus introduces two characters here, right? He introduces the strong man, and then he introduces the stronger man. So let's look at the strong man first. Now remember, this is in the context of of an exorcism. This is in the context of Jesus casting out this demon from this man, completely changing his life. And Jesus uses this this moment, he's using this demon possession to, uh, and this deliverance of this man to make a larger point about about freedom and redemption. There, There is a strong man, this is what Jesus is saying, there is a strong man who wants to make his home 
in the hearts of men, women, and children. C.H. Spurgeon commenting on this passage says that although man's heart was intended to be the throne of God, it has now become a palace of Satan. He says, whereas Adam was the obedient servant of the Most High and his body was the temple of God's love, now through the fall, through his sin, we have become servants of sin. And our bodies have become workshops of the enemy. There is a strong man who wants to move into your house. And this strong man is strong. The enemy is strong. Make no mistake about it. He is strong, and Scripture says he is fully armed, and he guards his own palace. The, the enemy, the devil, he has power, but it's power on loan, right? He has authority, but it is authority on loan. Scripture says, for example, in 2 Corinthians 4, that, that he is the God of the world. He is the ruler of the world. He is the prince of the power of air in Ephesians 2. John says in 1 John 5, we know that we are from God, and yet the whole world lies in the power of of the evil one. There's a strong man at work in this world. Job refers to the devil as the Leviathan. The Revelation uh, records the devil as a, as a dragon. First Peter talks about the enemy as a roaring lion. And, and what is his weapon of choice? Lies. Lies. Scripture says in John 8, 45 that the enemy is the father of lies. In fact, when we meet the enemy, you remember in Genesis, when we meet the devil, when we meet this enemy, this one who is against Christ, in Genesis 3, Scripture says that the serpent, this is how we're introduced to this person, the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the fields. And he, he slithered his way up. Well, I guess at this point he could walk, right? He walks himself up to Eve and he says, did God say that you couldn't eat of, from any of the tree in the garden? He's just sowing, sowing lies into their minds, making them question what God had said, making them question what God commanded. The devil is a strong enemy and a crafty liar. And as the ruler of this world, for this moment, as the prince of the power of the air, church, is important for us to know, he knows our weaknesses. And he would love for you to think that you have none. One writer says, he, the enemy knows how to adapt his temptations to our besetting sins. Anybody experience that, right? It's like the enemy knows right where we are about to break. He knows our flaws. He, he discovers fitting times in which to assail us, right? When we're tired or irritable or bored, right? Or, or arrogant. He knows those moments to assail us. He is a good swordsman and he knows every cut. He knows every guard. He knows every thrust. He knows our weak places, the joints in our harness. Christians who have ever stood foot to foot with this enemy will give credit for him. He is strong. He is strong indeed. And even unbelievers who have at any time sought to resist his power in their own strength, they have soon been made to feel that their strength is just perfect weakness. He is a strong man and he is a liar. What lies is the enemy telling you this morning? 
What, what lies is the enemy telling you this morning? He's telling, he's telling some of you this morning that you're, you're just too bad. You're beyond forgiveness. You're beyond repentance. You've done too much. You've, you've fallen too far. There's no hope for you. There's no redemption for you. The word Satan literally means accuser. The word devil means slanderer. To some, though, he's telling you, you're a really good person. You are, look at all these other jokers, but you, you are a really good person. You don't need forgiveness. Look how well behaved you are. You're fine. You're not a slave to anything. To some, he's saying you don't need God. Focus on your stuff. To some, he's saying God doesn't love you. To some, he's saying uh, God, doesn't, God doesn't, isn't there. God doesn't listen to you. God will not respond to you. God does not love you. God does not know you. What lies is he telling you this morning? To some, he's saying nothing. Because he's already distracted you with all the things of this world. You've busied yourself with all the things that are not very important. He has distracted you from all the things that are important. He says essentially, don't think about life. Don't think about death. Don't think about sin. Don't think about eternity. Think about all this stuff right in front of you. Don't think about how you're actually doing. Hunt instead. Shop instead. Work instead. Go to church instead. Just don't ask yourself the hard questions. To some, he's saying, you'll never be good enough to get it. And to some, he's saying, you'll never be bad enough to need it. And he is a liar on both counts. But the strong man knows you, he knows our weaknesses. He knows where we're exposed. And this is what scripture says. He is watching his house. He's watching his palace. He, he's guarding his own palace. And his goods, what does it say? His goods are at peace. That's terrifying, church. This is the most terrifying news of all. Uh, one writer says, this is the most fearful sign in the whole affair. The man is quite undisturbed by the strong man taking a seat in his house. His conscience does not prick him. Why should it? God does not alarm him at all. Who is God to him? Who is God that he should obey his voice? Thoughts of hell, they never disturb us. Peace, peace, Satan says. It is well with you. Leave these foolish superstitions to those who believe in them. And yet the wrath of God which hangs over that man, it never worries him. Because when men are mortifying, they feel no pain in the mortified member. He, he is awake, he is active, he is guarding his palace, and his goods are at peace. Well, uh, Spurgeon says, you may find sleeping saints, but you will never find sleeping devils. God is at work, and the enemy is working too. The devil is a strong man. And we can't defeat him. 
not on our own. We need a stronger man. In verse 22, Jesus says, when one stronger, though, when one stronger attacks the strong man and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted, and he divides his spoil. There is a stronger man. There is a stronger man who binds the strong man, who conquers the strong man. This is essentially the fulfillment of the, of the promise and the curse that God gave to the enemy, the serpent, in Genesis 3, where it says, you will bruise his, the Messiah's heel. Right? You're dangerous. You're going to cause harm. You're a strong man. You're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. You're going to lose this one. You're not gonna, it's not going to go well for you. Jesus is <clears throat> he's a stronger man. He's stronger than our addictions. He's stronger than the abuse you endured as a child. He's, he's stronger than your children's disobedience. He's stronger than your flawed marriage. He's stronger than your pride. He's stronger than your greed. He's stronger than your lust. He's stronger than your failures. He's stronger than your worry and your anxiety. He's stronger. He's stronger than you, and he's stronger than the strong man. But Satan is strong. He wants you to believe he's not. He either wants you to believe that he's not strong... Or that he's the stronger man. But he is a liar. Satan is like a, a, a venomous but beheaded snake. He is dangerous. But he's defeated. He's defeated. There is no question whether or not we will be driven and possessed by something. Do you know that? You will be a slave to something. You will be driven by something. You will be possessed by something. The only question is what or who will possess us. And there is no middle ground. Jesus says that the lines are clear. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. We, we need to be possessed. We need to be indwelt by one who is stronger. Thomas Chalmers says this, we need, what we need is the exclusive power of a new affection. We need to love something more than we love our stuff. We need to believe in something more than we believe in ourselves. And then Jesus, this is so strange, Jesus concludes this um, very odd parable with another very strange analogy right here in, in verse 24. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person and passes through waterless places, seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. What is Jesus talking about here? The idea here is that, that man may experience freedom from the enemy for a time. That, that man may experience freedom from the enemy for a time. That, that, in, that the enemy, seeking, seeking, essentially seeking rest from tormenting you, is as he, he, he departs and he passed through waterless places, these desolate places. 
But you see what Jesus is saying? This is in some ways where the real danger begins. He says in verse 25, when this spirit comes back, it finds the house swept. They've cleaned it up. They've put it in order. And then it goes and it brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and they dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. The devil loves a tidy house. And that's what many of us settle for, right? Theologian Leon Morris called this a, a moral tidying up. Some of you have, been, have done a great job at cleaning your house up. Your life looks, looks so good. You're so well behaved. Look where you're at on Sunday morning, even in this weather. You're here. You've swept the floors. You've dusted the mantle. But there is filth there. There is grime there. We need washing, not just sweeping. One commentator says, sweeping takes away the loose dirt, but the washing takes away the filth. Oh, to be washed in the blood of Jesus. Here is a man in this passage whose house is swept. The loose sins are gone, right? He is not a drunkard. There is a pledge over his mantelpiece that says so. He is no longer lustful. He says he hates that sin, or at least he says he hates it. The place is swept. The room is tidy. The, the heart is neat. You would not even know this man now to be the same man as before. He's got his house so clean. And when he meets the devil, he says, good morning. I'm glad I don't look like these other folks who have such a messed up life. I mean, look at them. Look at that mess. You see how tidy I've made this house? And the devil looks around and he finds that place swept and he finds it garnished too. The man has bought some pictures. He doesn't have real faith, but he's got pictures of it. He has no love of the cross of Christ, but he's got a crucifix on the wall. It looks so clean and tidy. He says there's a fireplace, but there's no fire. There's no fire. There was a, a pastor in Philadelphia years ago. Um, his name was Donald Day, uh, Gray Barnhouse, and he was on a radio program uh, from CBS, and they were interviewing him. He was a pastor, theologian, writer, and they were asking him, he was a pastor in Philadelphia, what, what would it look like, pastor, if the devil was in charge of Philadelphia? What would that look like? And so this, this pastor's answer to that question, what would it look like if Satan took control of the city? He said, if Satan took control of Philadelphia... All the bars would be closed. Pornography would be banished. There would be pristine streets with tidy pedestrians who smiled at one another, greeted one another. All the kids would say, yes, ma'am, and yes, sir. There would be no swearing. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. The devil wants us to have a tidy house. He would love for us to be wicked and cruel, but he would be happy for us to be good 
but godless. And this is the risk. Stop trying to clean up your own house. You're a terrible housekeeper. Stop trying to clean up your own life and turn to the one, the only one who can truly wash you. There are dark places in our soul, church. There are areas that we want to keep hidden. There are rooms we want to keep locked. There are areas we want to keep dark. And so we tidy up the rooms we can. We tidy up the rooms that we let people in. But we need, and that's seven more spirits, more dangerous than the first. They come in and they wreck the house. Right when you think you've got things solved. If you've never been washed. If you don't have a stronger man who is Lord of the house. Again, to quote Spurgeon, he says, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus this morning. The battle is won for you. Cast your poor spirit on Jesus and burn your broom. It doesn't do you any good anyway. You want sweeping, but you need washing. Washing with the blood, he says. Come to his precious blood and be made clean. There is, there is one stronger church than the strong man. Trust in him this morning.